And welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and joining me today is Divinder Hardwar. Divinder, how are you? I'm doing well on this bright Sunday, Saturday morning, actually, at this point. Yeah. It's super early. It's like Saturday, 7 a.m. We're getting this out before the holiday. And it's just you and me today, because Jeff is also getting ready for the holiday uh, with his family and uh, recording other podcasts, is what I understand. He's just that uh, traitor. He's out that on other shows. Bastard. So, yeah. Uh, very disappointing. But nonetheless, the Slash Filmcast must go on with me and Devendra here today to review Jojo Rabbit. Uh, I do also want to mention that. Uh, because it's just me and Devendra, because we're just doing a movie review today, there is going to be an after dark uh, after the review. We'll try to put an approximate timestamp in there, uh, but uh, in, in the show notes, I should say. And so you check that out if you want to uh, listen to the after dark, uh, which will contain spoilers for Ford v Ferrari. I will note them clearly when they happen. Uh, but yeah, if you're just not interested in Jojo Rabbit or haven't seen it yet, there will be an after dark that you can check out later. You can find more episodes of the show at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Uh, let's take a listen to the trailer for Jojo Rabbit. His master Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, <laughs> ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Was? Of course you can. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler, I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. That was from the trailer for Jojo Rabbit, the new film by writer-director Taika Waititi. And it was based off of the uh, book by Christine Lunens uh, called Caging Skies. Uh, and I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Uh, a young boy in Hitler's army finds out his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. Now, this is uh, a pretty interesting movie, Divindra, because it's mm-hmm. uh, a writer-director, you know, coming off of the success of uh, a Marvel film or a series of Marvel films. I, I feel like many of these uh, directors that started out in small indie movies, they go off, they make these massive movies, and then they uh, kind of make a really, really interesting, sure. uh, mo- like smaller movie. Basically, with, a blank check movie, I guess. A blank right? check like, movie. That's right. Yeah, yeah. they can do whatever uh, they want. And I think that's that's great. We're starting to see the cultural impact of that already, right? So Jojo Rabbit's come out. Knives Out's coming out next week. Another movie uh, by a uh, director who used to make smaller movies, made a mm-hmm. big movie, coming back to making smaller movies again. Um, and I, I love it. I love that they have the clout now to kind of take these uh, big chances with these movies that have like big stars in them, um, but that are movies that otherwise the studios aren't really making that often these days. Yep. And mm-hmm. so it's very encouraging to see a movie like Jojo Rabbit, regardless of what you think of it. All that being said, what did you think of this movie, Devendra? Oh, I completely loved it. Um, I think I'm just a sucker for the way Taika Waititi handles um, kids and kids' emotional like interiority. So think of like Hunt for the Wilder People, which is 
an astounding movie, when, a movie I completely love. Um, I don't think Jojo Rabbit is on that level, but this movie does a good job of kind of balancing this one kid's, you know, a, a Hitler youth, basically, who's all in on Nazidom and everything Hitler is selling um, and kind of showing like how it's something that's really geared towards a childish mentality. Like it's uh, the propaganda. A lot of it is something that is really appealing to a kid. And the movie does a great job of balancing that tone, I think. And he has Hitler as like an imaginary friend in a really funny performance by Taika, too. Um, totally like it's really fun and absurd and zany at the beginning. And then things get progressively darker and progressively, you know, deeper. And I think it balances that well, too. Uh, I, I think that was one of the complaints I've seen in some reviews about this film, where there are some big tonal shifts. Uh, maybe uh, Hunt for the Wilder People handled that better. And certainly when you're dealing with uh, Nazi Germany, things get rough, certainly like in terms of how you're representing everything. But I completely love this movie. Like it is it is a kids in peril movie. It's a movie that had me kind of worried about what's happening to poor Jojo and his friends. Um, the main actor, Roman Griffith, Griffin Davis, is fantastic. He does a good job of like demonstrating um, just being a plucky kid. Uh, almost like somebody yanked out of a Wes Anderson movie. I, I'm thinking of like, uh, what was the one with the two kids who are in love? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Moonlight something, right? Moonlight, Moonlight Kingdom. Yeah, like sort of like that. That sort of like you know, fantastical view of the world. Everything's Moon, so Moonrise simple. Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom. Kingdom. Yeah. Um, but that sort of like simplistic view of the world. That's kind of like cute and uh, twee at the same time. And then, like, you have Scarlett Johansson as his mother, who is sort of, like, just dealing with the fact that her son is this, like, uh, crazy zealot, like a full believer in everything Hitler is selling. And I found that kind of interesting because she's somebody who doesn't quite agree with what's happening. And I really loved her performance because she was really portraying uh, this mother who genuinely loves her son, but is also, like, worried for his soul. And I think she portrays that really well. Um, there's there's a lot going on in her performance I really enjoyed. Um, yeah. So by the end of this movie, I, it definitely like hit me. It was quite a gut punch, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's funny, but will like leave you thinking and kind of yeah, kind of gut punched at the end. All right. So a, a, a few thoughts. I think that when I saw that Taika Waititi would be making a movie set in Germany during mm -hmm. the Second World War in which he would be playing a satirical version of Hitler, uh, I, I got a little worried. Um, I mean, I got excited, but also a little worried because I think any time you are uh, setting this extremely dark time in human history in a humorous context, you are playing with fire. I mean, I think it's just, it is a, a, a challenging thing to get right. And uh, if you do it incorrectly, you offend a lot of people or you upset people mm -hmm. or you don't land your main point or you're trying to be satirical, but you do it so badly that your piece of art actually ends up getting used as fuel for the opposing side. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, all those dangers are, are present in this movie. And we can talk a little bit more about that in spoilers. But I'll say overall, like, you know, I, so I was coming into this movie very apprehensive. You know, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, I, I don't mm -hmm. know if he's going to get this right. Don't know if he's going to nail this. And some of the reviews were uh, overall very positive. You know, I think it has like around 80 or 90 percent Rotten Tomatoes. But 
uh, I was uh, still nonetheless worried about the movie and not sure if it would land for me. And I have to say, it did. You know, I think that I really liked this movie. I thought yeah. that, um, uh, the, as you mentioned, like the the central performances are really great. And when we think about how uh, the the topics of this movie are relevant for today, I mean, obviously, uh, we have uh, evidence that there's white nationalists working in the White House today, and uh, and so that's like relevant in and of itself. But the thing that that this reminded me of, honestly, is that uh like the thing i felt most acutely was mm-hmm. this must be what it is like to have a child who believes in gamergate you know like when yes. you're living today yes. is, is that this like it's like the incel argument too like it's it's all of that yeah i, I don't know about incel but i think like that that's i guess that's kind of, that is a it's all this, interrelated right? but, like, but it's, it's all like, like yeah but but it's like uh, I remember when the Gamergate, you know, thing happened, and reading like heartbroken messages from parents who um, their their children had basically been indoctrinated through YouTube and social media, and they, that they believe like oh, you don't understand, mom. It's all about ethics and games journalism and yeah. things things like that. That like uh, I, I felt how powerless Scarlett Johansson's character felt. Like she couldn't even. You you can't in that situation you can't address the issue head on because you can't because, argue it really. because yeah. more often that will merely reinforce the indoctrination you know what I mean because mm-hmm. because like part of the indoctrination is the belief that like not everyone is going to believe you and and the, those that don't are enemies right and and so it's like a self reinforcing system and that's kind of what I w- was thinking about as I was watching Scarlett Johansson's character you know she plays Rosie trying to talk some sense into her son. And she doesn't really spend that much of the time of the movie doing that. She just, I, I think she kind of is resigned to the idea that her son is a fanatic mm-hmm. and that the best she can do is try to uh, love him and provide a, a good home for him and hope that one day he will come around. Like hope that by seeing the values that she espouses yeah. and lives out in her life, uh, that he will recognize the wrongness of his ways. I mean, I, whether or not that's a that's a uh, effective uh, method in reality, I I do not know. Uh, I'm I I don't know enough about you know deprogramming to understand whether or not that that's effective. I will say the movie makes a, a good case for that being like you know mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. The movie seems to believe that that is like the best that that character can do, and uh and and like it makes a convincing case of that now in in reality that might be actually a bad idea and you might need to do you might need to take more drastic measures i don't i just don't know enough unfortunately um but in the movie i i think it's it comes across as like hey this is actually like a pretty reasonable point of view for this mother to take and she does the best she can and um you know I, we we can talk later about whether she was successful or not but like i think that um i was very touched by how uh how hopeless this situation seems and how the mother nonetheless is still hopeful in yeah. this really challenging circumstance both at home and in her country exactly um, I, I think the early scenes with those two kind of brought a tear to my eye just in terms of like how absolutely loving she was as a as a character and what she was trying to convey to him because yeah you can't have the didactic argument about why specifically this whole entire philosophy he's grown up with is wrong because this is everything this kid knows but 
slowly but surely, yeah, she's trying to show him something different too. I will say that one of the things that the movie does a fairly good job of, in my opinion, not a not a perfect job, but a fairly good job of, is uh, making you understand why people would be taken in by this kind of propaganda. You know, because mm-hmm. for this kid Jojo, who's kind of like a lonely kid, not really uh, what we would understand to be like an alpha male. You know, like kind of a meek, uh, timid child. Uh, and kind of an outcast, uh, certainly becomes an outcast during the course of the movie, uh, you can understand why something like Nazi propaganda would be extremely intoxicating to them. Mm -hmm. And it's because like this kind of propaganda, this kind of ideology preys on people who uh, generally are otherwise like unfulfilled in some way. And I, I think that the movie... Like does a, does a good job of like making you understand. Like, you know, the movie is very much from his perspective, the child's perspective, yeah. and yeah. everything is whimsical and everything is fun, and that's the point of the movie. It's like, it's like we're showing you the internal battles that happen in a child's mind as personified through Joe Hitler, and we're also showing you why this child would find you know it be like it to be an appealing thing to be in Hitler Youth, right? And. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's like theoretically a service the movie is doing is uh, letting you understand that like anyone can be taken in by this. And like that's why it's even more important to be vigilant against uh, these kinds of ide- ideologies and, and, and to kind of think about what the root cause is, right? That it's sure, sure. The, like this kid is not necessarily dumb. Um, but he is, uh, he does have problems that predispose him to, uh, to believing in this stuff. And so, uh, as kind of an illustration of the mindset of a child during this very tumultuous time in human history, I think it's very effective and very heartwarming and at times very funny if you're willing to embrace the mm-hmm. movie's tone, which, uh, not everyone is. And I'll just say briefly before we get into the spoilers that like, if you aren't, if you are not willing to embrace the tone, uh, I completely understand that. I think that, you know, Devendra, I had this. Um, uh, there was there was a heated heated debate. I mean, I'll, I'll say that like as time has gone on and as social media has become more prevalent in our lives, uh, it, it has been really exhausting to to share opinions about. Uh, movies in general because sure, yeah. uh, everyone has a take and there's always like a lot of people who think you're wrong about anything. There's always some people who think you're right. There's always a lot of people who think you're wrong. And if you share your opinions, you can get really uh, beat up on social media. Um, and I I think like where I – one way I have felt this more, most acutely was in the depiction of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year. And there's many people, myself included, who really were not a fan of that depiction. And there were, like, I would say, you know, thousands of people on social, millions of people in real life who disagreed with us and who thought we were wrong and being too sensitive. And, oh, by the way, don't you understand? Don't you understand, by the way, that... Uh, that you're seeing it through Cliff Booth's perspective and that's why Bruce Lee looks like an asshole in this movie. And, uh, uh, you know, that's just uh, enormously frustrating to be on the receiving end of sure. uh, of those kinds of reactions. And so uh, having gone through that myself this year, I think that if, let's say, 
as an example, your family was murdered by Hitler, right? Like if Hitler mm-hmm. took actions that directly resulted in the, the slaughter of members of your family. Uh, I can understand why you'd be bothered that he is depicted in a very goofy fashion in this film. Well, I don't know if that like I don't know if that was a particular issue. I've seen it's more like there are other characters in this movie, like uh, Sam Rockwell's character, who is a person of influence in in the whole like Nazi hierarchy. But he's also depicted as somebody who uh, there is more going on. Maybe maybe a nice guy. I'm not sure what it is with him taking on a lot of these roles where he's like. <laughs> Yeah, a, like a, a racist the nice who, guy, who racist. maybe a nice guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, there's a lot of that going on. Um, I think some of that may be more. You, sure, you can sure. But what, question that. What, yeah. whatever the case, I think all I'm saying is like, uh, you know, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. But like, I personally understand anyone's reaction to this film because it's such a polarizing uh, situation, issue, series of events in history, like whatever. Uh, and if the idea of seeing Nazis portrayed in anything other than as dangerous war criminals uh, upsets you, I, I completely understand that. That, that you know, obviously, uh, it is not the writer or director's intention to upset you. Maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, I, I think that he's obviously trying to make a point about mm-hmm. how children see these things, right? And that like he's trying to make these characters into objects of ridicule. Uh, rather than like infantilize them or make them into things that aren't dangerous, uh, so I, I feel like that's the purpose. Um, and but that being said, if that is not how you read the purpose, I understand yeah. just because like this is such a polarizing uh, topic, subject, whatever, and it's such a fine needle to thread in terms of what Taika Waititi is doing, both in the script as well as his performance as Hitler, that. Uh, I think people can disagree. Respectable people can have mm-hmm. respectful differences about whether or not he actually threads that needle uh, successfully. I, I think, I, I think it's he also do- interesting. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think he does, but I can understand yeah. if a lot of people don't think he does. So anyway. it's also interesting. This movie is coming from a guy who is, you know, he's of Maori descent, but also he has Jewish heritage. So this is a guy who's really coming from the, you know, uh, being part of the oppressed minority in New Zealand, basically, and also dealing with the the legacy of having, you know, a Jewish family as well. So yeah, his perspective, I think, is really fascinating here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like in some ways, yeah, if I'm to uh, be presumptuous, like this might be a way to like making art in general can be a good way to work out one's feelings about a specific topic. Definitely. Right? definitely. And I don't know if that's what he was doing here, but it, it seems like very reasonable to, to conclude that that's something he was doing is that like, uh, there, there is this, like these atrocities that happened to his, uh, group of people in the past. And like by taking a satirical mallet to some of the people responsible, um, he can kind of help right. like understand what happened a little bit better. Help it's people also, and yeah, help people understand what happened a little bit better. Anyway, go ahead. It's also yeah something that's been done by like Mel Brooks and a ton of other people, you know, who who have been doing this work for a very long time too. So this is part of a long legacy, I think, of satirizing uh, Nazis in general. Um, I think some of the better criticisms I've seen is that uh, this movie does imply that um, you know if if a good person just kind of falls in with this Nazi philosophy, does that instantly make them terrible? And I don't know if the movie quite wrestles with that sort of baggage, but that did make me think of like what's happening here in America too. Certainly like when, um, 
when the the Muslim ban was being like discussed and implemented, it was terrifying to me to it was terrifying to see airport workers just instantly be like, oh, OK, those are my orders. I guess I'm not going to let these people into the country. I'm not sure if those people woke up that morning deciding to be, you know, to be instruments of a, of a hateful, you know, policy. But it's well, their job and they did it. And like, it's OK. What is what does that make them? eventually too right like that's a deeper discussion i mean i think that when the producers came out you know i, I actually never saw it to be honest with you but it's good, like yeah but i've heard it's good and it's like uh the the idea that nazis would be a problem in again in our lifetime was so remote back then mm-hmm. uh and now uh there is a very reasonable case to be made that there's white nationalist white nationalists plural working in the white house and influencing national policy like that that is uh a fact what i just said yep. and uh it makes the issues much hit much closer to home and therefore makes me uh for work like this specifically which is intended to be humorous you're intended to laugh at hitler it makes me much less kind of willing to tell someone hey don't you get that like this is the point it's trying to make it funny and it's like i understand that people don't want to laugh at this right now you know because it's not funny it's actually pretty upsetting and i understand like if if there's circuit like this is not the time some people think it's not the time uh to release or enjoy a work of art like this Mm -hmm. for me i found it to be really really effective and moving and very funny and we've already talked about uh, performances from people like Roman Griffin Davis. Uh, I thought Thomas Ak- Thomas McKenzie, who plays Elsa, is great. Scarlett Johansson, actually excellent. Like this is so one good. of my yeah. favorite performances of hers. And uh, uh, <laughs> Archie Yates, who plays Yorkie, who's JoJo's friend, the cutest kid ever. The kid, um, basically the kid from Up in uh, in real life. Really. <laughs> yeah, although uh, an Aryan version of that, and also yes, he's in the yes. Hitler Youth. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, this is what I'm talking, this is what we're talking about though, yeah. you know, like Alfie Allen in this movie, weirdly <laughs> hilarious. He's very funny, but, this, but yeah. this is what I'm talking about. Like the, the character of Yorkie is freaking adorable, but he's also a Hitler youth. He's also literally fighting on the side of the Nazis. And, uh, I understand why, like, uh, um, like people would be upset at a movie that makes Hitler youth out to be, yeah. uh, really cute. You know, like that's, uh, <laughs> but but at the same time as like that could be upsetting. I mean, I mean the the flip side of that is that the the point I think of showing that is to say that like children have no idea what the hell they're sure. doing. You know, they they have no. There's a reason why like many organizations like enlist in child soldiers is because like children don't fully have a grasp of like what's right and wrong and the consequences of their actions yet. <laughs> and. Uh, th- this movie tries to remind us of that in a humorous way through the character of Yorkie. Again, uh, your mileage may vary as to how much you think that's an important message or how yeah. tastefully you think the movie does that. So. It, it does make me wonder how much our capacity for satire exists now, because I don't know if it's uh, hot take culture or what, like the the way people will instantly judge a movie if they see a trailer or hear a pitch or something without actually seeing the thing. Well, I think, um, and again, that, I think that's a little unfair. I think I think the the point is is that the problem is that there are many people sure. who who will take uh, like if the satire is not done skillfully enough, there's people who will take the satire at self uh, uh, at face value. I guess it, it just seems like 
uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would we be having the same discussions? Or I mean, is it, I guess maybe it's the, it's the availability of like social media and everybody being able to write and express their opinions where, you know, you, you're hearing more dissent around particular depictions of a satire. I will say, I think this movie, if this movie had come out 10 years ago, I think it may have seemed a little more like, oh, this is, this is funny, but we've seen the producers. We've seen all this before. What relevance does this have to life today? Right. Whereas looking at it as a movie in 2019, it is it is absolutely relevant. It is absolutely like telling us something about the world. Yeah. I, so I just think that many times stuff that people think is satire or stuff that self-professes to be satire does a poor job of conveying sure. itself as satire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think this is a this is one of those pieces of work though. I think this is very yeah. clearly a satire. Like I, I... It, it goes to, it <laughs> goes to the extreme of giving you a clown Hitler imaginary friend, right? Like I think I think you know how you're supposed to take that, but agreed, I agree, yeah, I agree completely tough. with you. But but yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I think a lot of satire out there is actually pretty bad. I agree, and I think that. Um, uh, like or, or a lot of people say, hey, don't you understand it's supposed to be? Don't you understand the Bruce Lee scene is supposed to be satire? Well, hey, if a lot of us didn't understand that, then I don't think you did a good job at conveying that. You know, like yeah. I'm not saying that the, in fact that was the case for that scene, it's but also, I think like, yeah, not the best way to describe that scene. Right, sure. but that, that's but that's what I'm saying is like there's many people out there who like think that a work of art was intended one way, and the work of art didn't do a very good job of making itself clear that that's what it was intended, as evidenced by the fact that lots of people didn't assume it was satire. So, again, Jojo Rabbit, not one of those pieces of art. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really well done, uh, well worth seeing, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in spoilers. But before we get to that, we got to thank our sponsor for the day, Pretty Litter. Devendra, tell us, now that we're done talking about the uh, unpleasantness of Jojo Rabbit's uh, geopolitical circumstances, tell us about Pretty Litter. Listen, Nazis are bad, but what's also bad is dealing with my cat litter every day. Let, let, yeah. let me put it that way. Those are not comparable um, things that are bad, but they are both bad things. They are both bad things. They uh, they both smell like poop. I, I don't know. Uh, I love my cats. I love, you know, I have two cats. Um... The best thing about cats during cold months is that they, they love to snuggle up to you and keep you warm. The worst part about cats is that you have to deal with litter. And in New York, that involves lugging 20-pound boxes or jars of litter from the store. It's not great. So I want to tell you guys about Pretty Litter. It's basically Kitty Litter 2.0. It's shipped to your door in a small, lightweight bag. It lasts an entire month which I think is pretty cool. So no more having to deal with the store or anything like that. It has next level odor protection. So it uses crystals that trap and conceal odor and moisture. You just have to clean up the poop. You don't have to worry about like dealing with the pee until you like switch out the whole thing. The best part though, is that Pretty Litter monitors your cat's health. So it can change colors to detect underlying illnesses and will tell you if urgent care is needed. Uh, you know, which which is a big help. The cats aren't really good about telling you when they're sick. Uh, with my old litter, I would sometimes, if I saw blood, that's bad. But beyond that, you, you don't know what else is going on. So Pretty Litter kind of helps you with all of that, uh, certainly for kidney issues. So do what I did. Make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code FILMCAST for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code FILMCAST for 20% off. PrettyLitter.com, promo code FILMCAST. Thanks to Pretty Litter for sponsoring us today. We also want to thank people who donated to this podcast this week. Thanks to Dean R. and Michael Friedson for your donations. Thanks also to Marty Phillips who, write in, who writes in, quote, you bring so much joy. Thanks. 
Thanks to Marnie from San Francisco for writing that message to us. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, it's the holiday season. It's the time of giving. Go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Uh, or go to slashfilm.com, click on the slash filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. We never want you to donate if it in any way causes you hardship. But if you want to throw some cash our way, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and if you want to support us for free, really easy way to do that is go to uh, the Apple podcast link for the slash filmcast and just leave a star rating or a review for us. Um, so thanks so much to everyone who has donated. And hope everyone has a happy holiday. Let's get to spoilers for Jojo Rabbit starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. I think there is a boom goes the dynamite to be had about... Uh, Sam Rockwell and mm-hmm. playing <laughs> playing racists in you know prestige uh, movies. Several that, movies at this point too. that uh, like get a shot of at redemption <laughs> at the end of the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, that seems to be his his uh, he's typecast that way now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can totally understand because it's like, oh, don't you understand? There were like many good Nazis as well. Like that's kind of the implicit message of the Sam Rockwell character, right? Uh, and yeah. I understand why that would bother people. And, and somebody uh, who's also, like, dealing with their own, like, identity struggles, too. Like, right. it's like, implied. He's, he's, like, yeah. it's implied that he's homosexual, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I I don't really have anything to say about that character. He's he's kind <laughs> of, like, he's he's pretty stereotypical kind of character in this kind, in, like, he, I, I don't want to say yeah. this kind of movie, because this kind of movie is pretty rare, but, like, yeah, in yeah. a war movie, he's, like, a very stereotypical character. Well, of like, he's interesting because yeah. he's bad at his job, right? So he's, sort, <laughs> I think at first, it's like, oh, he's somebody who's just failing upwards, right? He's just, he kind of exists in this thing, and he doesn't really believe in the war, but he's going through with it. And then I think by the end, you're supposed to get the idea, like, maybe, you know, he helped them. In the house, maybe, you know, he is just trying to do what he can to survive while not like helping the Nazis too much, which uh, it's I guess that's a take that that's a better way to go than being, you know, full on Nazi supporting. But he's certainly also benefiting from a certain amount of uh, of protection there with that with that identity. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that. For me, the the like emotional elements of the movie were far more consistent for me than the humor elements of the movie. Sure, I thought the humor was like pretty hit or miss overall. Uh, so, for instance, there's a scene when like Stephen Merchant shows up as part of the Gestapo, and they they do all the like Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, like fifty <laughs> times, and I'm like, okay, okay, I don't really think this is that funny. I, I, that, but, that is the joke. That is the sort of like Christian Shawl as a horse. Yes, type joke. it just keeps going. It just keeps too going. Long. Like it was, it was barely funny the first time. <laughs> And like the second or third time, I'm like, mm, not really that funny. Yeah. Uh, but then he goes through the the book, uh, uh, like that the kid has written about why you know he doesn't like Jews, and uh, him reading through like everything bad that happens to Nathan. I thought that was just <laughs> hilarious. Like, just the funniest. The penny farthing bicycle element yeah. was really yeah. really funny. So. Uh, th- that scene kind of really encapsulated, uh, you know, the 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 great elements of humor and kind of the weaker elements for me. Some of it really hit well. Some of it didn't hit well. But um, also that, that that scene pivots completely into like a terror. Oh into, yeah, like a very scary thing. Super I think that, suspenseful scene. Yeah, 
that is the sort of like tonal shift that I really enjoy in this movie um, where, yeah, the the girl whose name I forget right now, Elsa, uh, she is pretending to be his sister. And clearly that that seemed like a big gamble, honestly, because maybe people locally would know that his sister isn't around anymore. So that it's lucky enough for her that that paid off. But that was a great scene, great use of tension, but also great use of Sam Rockwell's character, too. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about the the greater depths of that character at this point. Um, there is one particular scene, though, that kind of it kind it hit me for a wallop completely. And that is when he's outside, he sees the butterfly and he walks up to his mother's shoes, which I, I kind of knew that was coming. I didn't know how the movie would portray it. And between Roman Griffin Davis's performance and the sort of like subtlety of how they did that. Um, yeah, that made me that made me tear up quite a bit. It's really yeah. Emotional. I thought I thought it was great because you there are multiple close ups on her shoes um, yeah. throughout the film, and they do the the shoe tying thing as well, and so they they really set it up well. Although the thing that I couldn't get out of my head was it's very artful, Devinger, and I think it's very mm-hmm. purposeful. And they should. They, they, I don't think they should have done the scene a different way. But when I watched it, the the kind of uh, aspiring filmmaker part of me thought. You know, this is a way to shoot the scene so that Scarlett Johansson doesn't need to show up that day. Uh, I know that's probably not what was intended. Yeah, that's, it, that's a little. <laughs> that shows how how broken you've become, Dave. Like where you see the process, you're like, oh, she, she, yeah, she. Didn't have well, because because I think it's nice. notable that they don't show her face, but I, then I'm thinking to myself, well, would, would it really be, be more garish. effective to show the yeah. bloated corpse of Scarlett Johansson's body? You know, like that doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. Not really. I think they did it in a very artful way. You're right, um, and you, but, you get a wide shot too. And I think the the upfront of him seeing the confrontation, like seeing him. Be aware of what's happening. Him holding her dangling legs and just crying. And then the wide shot is him completely alone in that town yeah. square. And I was worried that people were going to be like, oh, you're you're crying over your Nazi, <laughs> you know, hating mother now. Now you're in trouble. But I'm glad the movie didn't even go that like it just gave us the the moment for him to kind of grieve for her and then cuts to him just like staring at her, like sitting there and just staring and dealing with that. And that kind of hit me of this poor kid being completely left alone in the world and having to fend for himself. Yeah. Let me ask you this question, Devendra. You know, sometimes on Twitter, uh, this thing can happen where, like, you you make a tweet and then people have, like, this entire conversation <laughs> in, like, in response to that tweet. But you're still tagged into the tweet, so sure, you see sure, all sure. the replies. Thank goodness and, for the mute conversation. Button. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that happened to me uh, recently with Jojo Rabbit, and I tweeted about Jojo Rabbit. And I, here's what I said about Jojo Rabbit: I said, "Hard to talk about this one, as I think anyone is well within their rights to dislike any depictions of Nazis that make them seem anything but dangerous war criminals." But I nonetheless found this movie very moving and beautiful and funny. And uh, two listeners or followers, uh, Maddie Togo and Dan Gvozdin from uh, Sup Spider Talk. A former guest of the show, friend of the show, basically had this huge conversation about the movie, like in my mentions, which is just yeah. like you know, guys, you can you can remove me from the mentions, okay? I mean, like it's it's good, <laughs> like the you know, Dan, I consider Dan a friend at this point, so it's not a big deal, but it's just like sometimes people just keep going, and it's like they're like having like personal revelations, yeah. you know, they're, they're like 
having life-changing, life-altering <laughs> epiphanies. You know, and I, I'm, I've, I've already Twitter's it, interface honestly because it is hard to see sometimes that that there are other people, people are tagged, tagged and yeah, who's tagged and how to remove them. Yeah, they're like you know uh, having like a, a life-changing come to Jesus moments in my mentions. I've already moved on from the topic like six months ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, but that's what this is the magic of Twitter. Anyway, uh, Dan made some good points about uh, about this movie that I wanted to read. So I guess it's not a bad thing that he still tagged me into this. He says, "quote uh, I found the psychology uh, damaging in how limiting it is. We see none of the propaganda that led to the child's indoctrination, nor do we have any idea of how his mind changes throughout, other than through the death of his mother, who seemed to give up on him." The Nazis are reduced to cartoonish oversimplifications, which I think fights against the Nazis are people too message that you experienced. I'd kill for a film that showed how propaganda can influence the minds of children and how they can be deprogrammed, etc. I guess my thought is if you're going to use Nazis as the target of your ridicule, you don't have to pull your punches. They are Nazis, the evil we compare everything against. They can still be human, but let's lean in. I have a brother-in-law who is a brainwashed fascist like the boy in this film. I guess I was hoping to experience a film that I thought would brutally showcase the hypocrisy of nationalism, etc., but I felt like this played too safe in a sort of unreality, end quote. Uh, and I, I can understand some, some elements of what Dan is saying there. I think that, uh, that as I mentioned m- multiple times at this point, uh, the movie, even when it has the chance, like... On some level, they're, the, the Nazis in this movie are cartoonishly evil, but then there's also mm-hmm. like the Sam Rockwell character, you know, who, hey, I guess he is kind of a human after all. You know what I mean? And also, the movie doesn't really get into what is required for deprogramming. You know, that's another thing that like I can see people objecting to is basically what what the movie, like the message of the movie one could interpret <laughs> is that all it takes is the love of a good woman. To like be deprogrammed, just like I, I in like guess. a beautiful mind, it's like all it takes is the love of a good woman yeah. to that, combat that certainly schizophrenia. Certainly, the most simplistic way to view that, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, but I'm, uh, but I mean, like, I, I can understand why, so, like, deprogramming is like very challenging and very complex, and you know, the movie makes this extremely serious problem out to be like relatively simplistic. Um, so I understand why that can bother some people. Mm-hmm. But um, the movie, the movie, like the whole point of the movie shows, I think from the very beginning when he doesn't wring that rabbit's neck at the behest of his uh, his older, you know, Nazi Hitler youth, um, it shows that this kid is thinking a little differently, right? He is not, he thinks he's on board, but he's basically just playing with toys at this point. Like he's not fully invested as maybe even he thinks he is. So... It's tough. Like, I yeah, don't no, you're right. You're, I think what you're saying is that. he's not fully brainwashed, or because yeah. he's he's young and, and malleable, he's not fully brainwashed, right? Yeah, yeah. So there, he, yeah, he's I mean, not I've, the kid. Like we we've seen movies about like really terrible fascist kids. Uh, I, I'm thinking of like uh, Portrait of a Leader, which uh, is a movie I'm sure you'll hate, Dave, if you if you'll or Childhood <laughs> of a Leader, uh, because it's by the guy who did uh, that Natalie Portman Portman movie that you also hated. Um, the Vox one where Lux. she's a pop star. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is just as like abrasive, and it's about like a terrible kid, and like could could he? What is he going to grow up to be? Um, this movie presents JoJo, I think, as a sweeter kid who may just be going along with all this because like it's it's what he's doing to like try to fit in. Yeah. I don't know. But at the same time, like the flip side of that is like it does remove some teeth from the satire, right? It's, I don't. Is like yeah. imagine if it was like a like extremely hateful, spiteful child. Like that was who the main character was. Uh, that that like actually 
brings out the actual danger that these people pose to society, sure. right? And that's a very different movie. But it's yeah. a very different movie. It's a very different movie, yeah. right? So uh, it, it, it's complicated. You could have made this movie in a, in a number of different ways. I think you know I liked the version of this movie that came out, but mm-hmm. as I've taken great pains to say, I understand why people didn't like it or why they feel like it doesn't go far enough with the satire or why it doesn't go far in its critique. I think those are all like pretty legitimate criticisms. Uh, all that said, I did find the relationship between Jojo and Elsa to be very touching. And and mm-hmm. it like felt like it developed in a very realistic way. Like I could see why this kid would have this huge crush on this girl um, and why like the, that would not be reciprocated because like that would have been extremely weird if that had happened. You know what I mean? So I, I thought it all like uh, played out delightfully and in a in very plausibly and very touching. And I think the ending is uh, is is a joy, you know, like when they, mm-hmm. they finally get to the end and and they've they've triumphed over this horrifying situation it's not like happily ever after either right yeah she's lost her family and her fiance he's lost his mother they're they're both like alone together in this future but at least there's hope yeah there's hope they have each other um or they have at least this time they they spent together Mm -hmm. and uh and i was i was quite touched by it um any anything else you want to mention i'll just say like one of the things that like I was most <laughs> was the most adorable things was when Yorkie tried to give Jojo a hug while he was in the robot suit. Yeah, I just thought yeah. that was so cute. Uh, and he does it. He just and Yorkie get... in his uh, his paper uniform too. It's like every time you see him, it's like more and more deteriorated because uh, yeah, they can't afford real uniforms. I guess yeah. Everything that Yorkie does in this movie is gold. Love Yorkie. I mean, I mean, he he says like you know everyone's everyone's mad at us, everyone's attacking us. The only people who are on our side are Japanese, and just between you and me, they don't look super Aryan. Yeah, which I just yeah. thought was amazing, <laughs> an amazing line. So. Uh, and, and oh, also the Scarlett Johansson scene where she plays both JoJo's mother and mm-hmm. father is, yep. is just a, a a brilliant piece of acting, but b also a great way of conveying like what kind of childhood JoJo had before yeah. we saw him without right. being like an uh, an exposition dump or something. Right? Yeah. 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 And so it's just a really kind of brilliant piece of screenwriting, I thought, uh, and mm-hmm. and and brilliant execution as well. So. Overall, I really like this movie, Dvindra. I think it's it's going to be my top ten, is my guess. Although my top yeah. ten currently doesn't have ten movies right now, um, but <laughs> it's pretty it, easy to get in there. It's pretty easy right now. You just need to be a movie I didn't actively dislike. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's it's great, and uh, I'd recommend it if you are if you are ready for the emotional wallop that it packs. So, mm-hmm. so shall we wrap it up there? Get to the after. Sure. Those are our thoughts on Jojo Rabbit. You can find more episodes at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And this uh, this episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Stay tuned here. We'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Devendra, where can people find more of your work on the internets? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech at Engadget.com. And I'm also doing the Engadget podcast there. Just uh, look that up on the site. Check out my stuff at culturallyrelevantshow.com. It's my new podcast where I interview filmmakers, authors, and other artists. This week I have an interview with Nathan Johnson, the composer for Ryan Johnson's new movie, Knives Out. So check that out. Nice. Uh, In the meantime, uh, next week we will be reviewing Knives Out. Uh, Monday or Tuesday after we get back from break, December 3rd or 4th, around thereabouts, we'll have a review of Knives Out, the new Ryan Johnson movie. So look forward to that as well. 
And that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving. Spend some time with your family. Give thanks for everything you have. And thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll see you next week. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, bad, it's the Slash Filmcast. For all the news and the movies coming out, because you know that it's the thing worth talking about. So, Devendra, we had a chance to see Tesla unveil the new uh, Cybertruck this week. Uh-huh. You are a technology writer at Engadget.com. Yep. Uh, I, I guess I'm curious. Like, apparently, people were expecting this, right? Like, like they yeah, they yeah, made an announcement. They, they yeah. made an announcement that they were having some event. I I didn't know. I I barely keep track of this stuff on the periphery. He's been so. teasing the cyber truck, like an electric truck, for a while now. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, were you excited? Like, are you a big Tesla fan? Like, what's your attitude toward Tesla at this point? Um, I mean, I, I think they've done a lot of cool things. Tesla, the best part of Tesla is that they've really pushed the entire car industry to really take electric seriously. So I don't I don't think Elon Musk is a particularly, like, uh, genius or a visionary guy, but he's made some big bets. Uh, Tesla, for a while, almost, like, almost crumbled because, like, he was betting everything on it. And it's kind of like... Uh, luck and like a certain amount of like happenstance that the other the other parts of the car industry just didn't really do electric so they they're able to survive and i think he's done some major things as a ceo i think he's kind of a mess he is he is basically like trump-esque in his ability to potentially destroy that company with a tweet um he's kind of a volatile character so yeah uh i have a lot of complicated feelings about tesla i wouldn't mind owning a tesla eventually uh ideally when musk is not around um but i'm interested in what they're doing and they do tend to push this industry forward uh this thing is one of the most hideous vehicles i've ever seen in my life it is the equivalent of the homer from the Simpsons, like this, uh, <laughs> this garish monstrosity of design that has maybe all fe- all the features you think you'd want, but maybe not put together in the way you'd expect. Uh, it is, it's disgusting. Like it, it's absolutely infuriating. It looks like um, didn't they play? Like he, didn't yeah? they play like a Mad Max Fury Road score when it rolled onto stage? If I recall I don't, correctly, I, I didn't see that full thing, but yeah. maybe sure. I, I'm not surprised. Like clearly, this is the product of somebody who grew up in like, you know, uh, science fiction and like uh, 80s uh, cyberpunk stories and things like that. It looks straight. It, it looks like the Warthog from Halo, except not as cool. It looks like something you'd find in the 1990s uh, Judge Dredd movie or not Judge Dredd. The 1990s. Um, I was going to say Deep Cut, the Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> well, also well, sort of like the Sylvester Stallone. Um, <laughs> and you'd find this rolling around in a mega city. In, in, in a mega city, like something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. It is, it's not great. It's, it's really ugly. Um, especially for like a company who's producing like really nice angular, like really nice curvy cars with cool designs. This is just going way out there. I think feature wise, it's really interesting, but this is not the future I want. I don't want to see this thing on the streets. And to I, me, it's I think if you saw it on the street, you would judge that person. You know, I like, would. It's it, sort it, of like when you see a Hummer, you're like, oh, this person doesn't give a fuck about the planet like this person this person doesn't care uh if i saw this on the street i'd also think like this yeah i, I would not think too highly of anybody using this uh, I, it also I, doesn't he, seem he, like he, yeah. here's here's my thing I'm, I'm a very like live and let live when it comes to cars sure. thing but 
the thing that really I would be bothered by is like it just looks extremely impractical, like mm-hmm. because it's so large. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just. I live in a city right now where uh, I end up parking in uh, parking garages a lot and uh, like in high density you know buildings and uh, there's the, the the space between the parking uh, stripes is not very large right yeah. and so like you just be you you'd essentially have to take up two spaces. This, this is not a good vehicle for cities, basically. Like it right. is, it is. It looks like it's the size of a full size pickup, which is what they're trying to be. But it also looks like a military vehicle, like in terms of the way it's designed and those giant wheels and everything. Yeah, so, it looks like something from Mad yeah. Max Fury Road, RoboCop One, RoboCop you know, One, Total Recall, yeah. like it, it Demolition like, Man. That's what I was thinking. Demolition it's a Man, Demolition <laughs> Man car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, my attitude towards this car and this event can be best summarized by uh, this article that Ryan Mack wrote over at BuzzFeed. I don't know if you saw this, but yeah, yeah. the headline of the article is, I can't stop watching this video of Elon Musk breaking his Cybertruck windows. Uh, and he says here, the unveil seemed to be going to plan until Musk and his chief designer decided for kicks that they'd throw a metal ball at the car's driver's side window, and holy hell, it was not worth it, according to a video I've watched approximately 37 times. I mean, it's, it's like a scene out of Silicon Valley, where he's like, hey, uh-huh. this, this glass is bulletproof, it can withstand anything. And then they throw a metal ball in it and it cracks, right? Well, it didn't shatter. It did. Okay. Well, so it didn't. Like, it didn't that, the ball something. did not go through, right? So that's yeah. that's to its credit, and that's actually probably better than most car windows. So yes. so fair yeah. is fair is fair. Like it is better than a normal car, but you know that they did not intend for that to happen like that. <laughs> and this is the thing. This is the thing that happens so often, Divinro. That like, I, I it doesn't drive me like it. It. it uh, I'll say at this point it's mildly irritating when it when it happens, right? Is when something like this happens, which I think, uh, uh, like by any me- any conventional metric, is a massive PR fail. By any conventional metric, is sure. a massive PR fail, right? Where uh, they get up on stage, they're like, "Hey, this glass will not break. This glass will not break. This glass will not break. Let's heave a metal ball at it. The glass breaks. Then the car needs to sit on stage." Yep. yep. For another what, fifteen minutes while the presentation completes, and in the background they project things that they threw at the car windows that were able to successfully withstand the force, uh, or at the and car. They, they did dump a large object on the windshield before this too, and it seemed fine. So, but yeah. that's the staging of the thing, like the staging of the thing was, hey, we need to keep the car on stage the entire time. We cannot <laughs> roll it off the stage, e- even though it is unsightly because it has these two huge. Massive blemishes on the windshield. Okay, so it looks terrible. It looks completely unintentional. And then every single time some of this happens, something like this happens, every single time, there's always a huge contingent, often of people in my mentions, that will say something like, oh, I bet he did it intentionally. You know, I bet they did it intentionally <laughs> not, because, not look, we're all, we're all talking about it now. We're all talking about it. They must have done it on purpose. And let me just tell you, it's 99.999% of the time, it's not on purpose. 99% of the time, you're like, you think to yourself, oh, this corporation must have done this extremely stupid thing on purpose. It's not on purpose. Um, And 
I, I don't know what else I can say about that, but like that, what I'm you just have to trust me that that is the truth. People can be very stupid. Corporations can be very stupid. These things happen. I mean, do, 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 do you think it's on yeah. purpose? Do you think it's on purpose? Do, do, no, no, <laughs> it's completely not. Like this, this is a major product. This is their first like non like car thing they've been doing, and they have a major competitor in Rivian or, who showed off this really cool looking electric FC, uh, like pickup truck. Did thing. Rivian's so, vehicle have uh, shattered windows? Uh, I don't think they <laughs> talked about it. I don't know why something like this would need bulletproof windows. Like, did it need that? Did it need to be covered in? Stainless steel, which is not light. That is, there's a reason cars have like you know the, this like plastic, uh, not plastic, but like polycarbonate type thing. Um, cars are meant to be a little flexible, so th there's a lot about this thing that just seems completely insane. The uh, the pickup bed is also way too high for people to use it the way people would normally use pickups. So anyway, it's a lot of stuff. I wish Jeff was here because Jeff is uh, fully on board. With this monstrosity, I really want to talk to him about it. <laughs> All right, so we, we'll, we'll, we'll just make we'll fun do of that it for next now. time. We'll do that next time Jeff is on. Um, but it, it, the the actual presentation itself of Tesla, like f this throwing this metal ball and the thing, you know, like it is just an exquisite. It's like watching David Brent do that dance he does in the original Office. <laughs> you know, like that dance. It's just, it's like so painful to look at and yet you cannot look away uh so i mean this is a this is a movie podcast but that is like one of the most exquisitely painful things i've watched in the last week yeah. and uh therefore that's why we're talking about it here on the slash cast after dark <laughs> speaking of painful things i watched we got a bunch of uh emails in well actually I, i'll get i'll do one email before we get to our ford v ferrari stuff uh we we got this email from somebody who signed their their email pissed off longtime listener and he writes and I'm just gonna say we're gonna give away some minor details about Mandalorian I don't consider these really to be spoilers but you may so skip forward if you do uh, this person wrote in guys what the hell not everyone in the world has access to Disney Plus yet and now on your show you of all people spoil the Mandalorian <laughs> disgraceful Devendra spoils it by revealing a small Yoda character is featured and Jeff talks about a character being cut in half. That's when I stopped and deleted your podcast in disgust. Uh, to which I responded, you know, th that I say multiple times, we are going to spoil the Mandalorian before any of that happens. And then this person wrote back in, I shall, I I'm going to keep them nameless out of courtesy. He says, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to reply, David. My apologies, my bad. I skipped through the advertising and missed your warning. Sorry once again, end quote. So I think this is a great object lesson in why you should never <laughs> skip the ads. <laughs> or, you know, skip the ads wisely, you know. <laughs> Wait, wait like, till the tail end. Yeah, this is this is the thing that people. This is what must have happened. Is this person must have skipped skipped the ads, blown straight past the spoiler warning, right? <laughs> and then just kept listening. Like for me, I have you know, uh, I don't want to say OCD because I think it's you know, I think people actually suffer from OCD. But I, I have like, I'm very fastidious. Let's use fastidious. And when I skip, if if and when I skip ahead of ads, which you know, yeah. I, I I will not say I do regularly, but like if and when I skip. I always rewind it to the portion right before yes. the ad ends. Because yes. it's like, why would I miss some of that sweet, sweet content? You know, it's like when you <laughs> recorded a TV show uh, off the off the TV on VHS or something, right? Yeah. It's that was a constant fight of like going going past the ad and getting right back to where the yes. show was. Why would yes. you skip the actual content itself? So I guess the the takeaway here is a don't skip the ads, okay? Because 
basically, uh, the ads help us to keep doing this show. <laughs> They're a really important part of helping us to keep doing the show. And B, if you do skip the ads, don't skip the actual content. You'll 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 pay for it. You'll, you'll pay for it as this listener did. Uh, and also, so. I, I think the only way to pay back this uh, this absolute slander on our character <laughs> and our podcasting capabilities is is a massive donation. That's all I can think of. At this point. <laughs> Not really, but fair enough. Um, anyway, just want, I thought that was a pretty hilarious. Like this guy, this person comes at me. This is the thing. This thing. <laughs> yeah, this actually yeah, yeah. is a very curious phenomenon. It comes that happens. in swinging. Yeah, this is a very curious phenomenon that happens like very often on Twitter and Twitter and email as well. Is like. Somebody's gonna come straight at you with like, yeah, yeah come swing, come out swinging, and like, I f- effing hate this freaking thing, and how dare you freaking make this thing? And then you respond to them, and then they're like, oh my, oh my gosh, so I didn't expect you to respond. Like, uh, big fan, you know, like, yes, yes. if you, particularly for celebrities, if you look at any time a celebrity responds to someone on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, like response to criticism on Twitter, like the person who made the initial tweet is always shocked that they got a response. And I'll say that's been me sometimes. Like I'll have tweeted something and somehow like the, you know, I'll never tag the person um, uh, if I'm criticizing them in some way. And then they'll respond and they'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like actually a big fan. Um, Didn't think you'd actually see that. Now, of course this is different because they actually emailed straight to us. Uh, But it it is you a phenomenon that like to see it once you, you once you, you yeah you want somebody to see it but not necessarily the person you're talking about right so it's it's sort of like I'm also thinking of a Simpsons reference uh, now uh, which uh, I was thinking of the guy the really tall guy in the small car I was thinking of that during during the Cybertruck reveal but it's sort of like people people shout at us a lot like for the show for things I produce online they, people love to shout ha ha but when you get out you step out of the car. And you confront them. Um, <laughs> think, thinks, you know, uh, d- does it find you funny? Well, that the, <laughs> as I drive my automobile, this is the largest car I can afford. Like as yeah. you confront like the realities of the situation, like it doesn't seem as uh, as funny to them. So that is my favorite phenomenon. I get a lot of flack for that from uh, adding gadget too, because I write about like Microsoft and I write about Apple. I just wrote about uh, my first very very positive MacBook Pro review in a very long time. And now I'm being called an Apple shill, even though I vastly <laughs> prefer PCs. So, uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think people will always be hating. And also, if you're writing criticism, write it as though the person uh, is going to uh, – uh, the per- the person who you're directing it yeah. to is going to read it. A human and being is going to read it. A human being is going to read it. Keep that in mind. Okay. So, Devendra, last week we spoke about Ford v. Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And uh, – I had, you know, not very nice things to say about it, and uh, we got a lot of response, like a lot of tweets, a lot of emails about it, and I wanted to address some of them because I think some of them are really good. Um, so let's talk first of all about like, so I'll say we're probably going to spoil Four V Ferrari during this next talk. So like, uh, if you don't want to be spoiled on Four V Ferrari, this thing that happened thirty years ago in real life, um, then tune out for the rest of the podcast. Uh, but uh, so we got an email from Jared Oliver who wrote in to share about like some of the techniques that were used. And he, he links to this article from premiumbeat.com, which actually is like one of my favorite, not only is it a great like stock music website, but they also do articles about filmmaking uh, and they, they have really good SEO. They rank really high on, on articles on, on filmmaking. So they often show up in my Google results. 
And uh, there's an article entitled Ford v- Making Ford v. Ferrari Cinematography at 100 Miles Per Hour. And they show how they use these things called process trailers, hostess trays, and specialty vehicles to shoot vehicles mm-hmm. going as fast as they do in Ford v. Ferrari. As I mentioned last week, um, one of the great things about Ford v. Ferrari is that it is able to film these vehicles, these race cars, seemingly going as fast as they do in real life. And... In general, that is very, very difficult to do because uh, those vehicles are uh, specifically designed to go that quickly. Like they're very low profile, they're very light, you know, and so they're specifically designed so that they can, can go that quickly. And generally, a vehicle that can hold a camera does not go that quickly, right? And so they were able to use a combination of methods, and I, I assume some CG as well, uh, but a lot of practical methods to shoot. The, the racing scenes, uh, and again, they use these things. It's basically like uh, race cars, like uh, like basically like a cart that has a camera built into it with a race car on top of it uh, is one of the ways they use to shoot it. Right, right. Um, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but you can check it out. But thanks to Jared for sharing that with us. Uh, this email comes from Hank to slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Hank writes in, uh, really enjoyed the podcast. Listening to the episode has been really frustrating. Um, Opinions are clearly subjective, and I don't think this film is a masterpiece of cinema. However, there are some inaccurate assertions that frustrated me. Uh, Number one, the driver team size for Ford for the 24-hour of Le Mans during the film setting is two people, not four drivers. I don't know if we... What we said. You, but, you said multiple drivers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sorry. Sorry if I. I don't know if we we didn't specifically say two, but it did sound like I think the movie didn't make it super clear. Either, it, the movie. Yeah. So, the movie yeah. did not do a good job of making clear yeah. what it was. Yeah. Okay. So then he says here the pl- quote. Uh, the plot does not care about the second driver on Miles' team at all, but he is cast. He appears on screen multiple times. He is named and he has lines. It blows my mind that someone would ever watch this movie and wonder, did they even cast the other driver? Oh, that was something that Jeff said on last week's episode. <laughs> Additionally, I think there is definitely a naming failure. The film is called Le Mans 66 outside of the U.S. I assume this was done due to Ford's name recognition in the U.S. This is a naming failure because it's not a classic sports underdog movie, a la Bad News Bears, sure, but the sure. opposing sides in the name sets up unfulfilled expectations. It, it, by, by the way, in the U.K., it's also, I think, illegal to have uh, company titles, mm. like company names and titles. So that's partially why. It's about working as an artist slash creative within the confines of a bureaucratic monolith. I also don't think it showcases American exceptionalism. I think American corporatism is shown to be massively evil, to be uh-huh. passively evil. It's a movie about individual accomplishment under systematic duress. The most exceptional character in the movie is English. The Englishman is even referred to as a superhero type in the podcast. He uses American money to succeed despite the American corporation trying to squash him. Part of me hates defending the film. I think it could have been a lot better and largely waste the performances of Damon and Bale, but I think it does does a disservice uh, to movie fans to make inaccurate statements, and I think it needs to be discussed as it is instead of what one wanted it to be or what, what one thought it might be before viewing it. Uh, end quote. So that comes in from uh, from Hank. Thanks to Hank for the email. And yeah, I, first of all, let me just say, unequivocally agree, like if we, if we ever get anything factually wrong, that really bothers me a lot. And in general, people do let us know and we do try to correct it on, on the podcast because um, I want this to be a podcast of accuracy. So like, thank you for holding us to that standard. Uh, now, Devinder, I've, I've had a lot of time to think about our conversation last week about 4V Ferrari. And I stand by... 95% of it. So, like most of it, I still 100% stand by, 100% agree with. But the one thing that I do think I, I got wrong was <laughs> was like framing the Ford, you know, like 
my framing of Ford as kind of like the underdog winner. Now, I will say, like, I agree with you in, in retrospect, looking back on it, like, that you're right that this is like th- this movie is primarily about artistry succeeding under a punishing bureaucratic and corporate environment, right? Like, I think, I think when I think back on the movie, like, that is the message that comes across. And it all is summed up in one moment that I don't think we talked about in last week's episode. It's summed up in the moment where. At the end of the movie, after Ken Miles has had the victory stripped from him unceremoniously, mm-hmm. uh, he he kind of has a face to face meeting with the head of Ferrari, and like the head of Ferrari like doffs his cap to Ken Miles. Yeah, right? well, they're they're still very apart, but it is like the way they're framed. It looks like they're right together. Yeah, like he's yeah. in a balcony or something. Yeah. Like, you know, he's like mm-hmm. separate. He has a physical barrier separating him or something. But he kind of doffs his cap to him. And the point of that scene is game recognize game. You know, the point of that scene is I, the other artist, recognize that you too are the artist. And you have triumphed in a very challenging situation. Right? That is ultimately the point of that scene. And one could argue the movie. Yeah. And also the the pursuit of artistry coming at the expense of everything else, by the way. Because uh, Ferrari pretty much bankrupt at the beginning of this movie. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh yeah uh ken miles lost his life in in, yeah ken miles lost his life but even before that like he's he's not doing so well he's uh his garage (laughs) yeah well he's probably not the best customer service uh you know person either but (laughs) these guys are so singularly focused on what they're doing it uh it kind of hurts everything else around them yeah yeah now here's what i'll say in my defense so i think like if this movie had been called le mans 64 in the u.s I might have had a much different. What what attitude. does a title? I don't. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just finish what I'm saying, okay? Yeah. Which is that, uh, which is that I think that I would argue the the cinematic language of the film positions Ford as the the party to root for, in for the most part. Like Josh Lucas is kind of this slimy, disgusting character, and obviously. Um, no one likes that character, and I, I think it's very clear he's supposed to be a bad guy. Sure, but, but also Tra- Tracy Letts, his his introduce his introductory scene is Tracy Letts berating the you know laborers working under him while he's standing on a platform like a king or something, and forcing then, them to then walk home. Okay, okay like, but fair yeah. enough. But then there's that moment when. Lee Iacocca goes back, but like Lee Iacocca, a character whose arc is like yes, a, a complete yeah. non-entity in my opinion. Non-entity, like, but I do enjoy seeing John Berthel in he's fancy awesome. suits. He's, yeah. he's awesome, although like he's like literally like bursting out of his shirt. Like, yeah, yeah, it's he's great. He's so jacked. It's like that character is not a marketer for And he also disappears from the movie after like 30 minutes or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like complete waste of a character in my opinion. But Lee Iacocca goes back to Ford and he's like, hey, by the way, he said you're fat and you make ugly cars and da-da-da-da-da. And then... Tracy Letts sits behind the desk and he's like, "We're going to bury, we're going to bury Ferrari at but, Le Mans." But no, and the I, thing, like he, he says, "Hold on, let me just finish. Let me just finish. Yeah. Let me just finish. Yeah. He is framed triumphantly. Like the camera is like literally like kind of at his level on the desk. We're going to bury Le Mans, and I think like you as the audience in that moment, you're supposed to be like, "Yeah, we're going to bury those effing foreigners, right? Like that's what the movie is evoking." No, uh, like how no, dare they encroach on our? I, I'm trying to interrupt you yeah, okay, by okay, uh, asserting facts in that scene, Dave. Once again, uh, it wasn't like he takes all that. He, he's absorbing like all these criticisms. He says, "Oh, you're you're sons of whores, yada yada yada," and then he says, "You'll never be, you know, you'll never be Henry Ford. 
you are Henry Ford II. And then he has a look. And then the framing changes. And then it's like, we will crush Ferrari. And I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily triumphant. I think that is in some ways hilariously petty. Like it shows like oh, he, oh. he'll take all the other criticisms, but like that, that, that defines the scene, Dave. Well, let me just say, I agree. It's hilariously petty. That's, that's yeah, the, the, yeah. my whole point. But that is how is, the scene is not triumphant. It's not, it's more like this. Look at this rich, you know, joker basically. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I disagree. Like this is what I'm saying is like, I think that ultimately you're right that Ford is the bad guy, but I do think that like up throughout most of the movie, uh, Tracy Letts character is framed as like you, like you are meant to root for that character. And no, there, there's oh man, and they're jing- like I, I don't know, dude. I, like there, I, there's nothing. I feel I, I'm, like my I'm feeling, my you. feeling. I'm just saying my yeah. feeling. Sitting in the audience when Tracy sure, Letts character sure. let loose with that like jingoistic petty thing is that like we're supposed to root for him. And I personally found that to be laughable. Sure, and I, sure. I don't think we're supposed to. Like I agree with you. I don't think we should root for him. But I think that that's what the movie conveys that we should do through I, the way that that scene is shot. I don't know, because as literally as we were having this conversation, as you're recounting the scene, you cut out the bit that defines the the sort of like the sort of like cynical statement the movie is making. Uh, but but like, even that I don't I don't agree that that's meant to be. It's like, hey, this person is saying I cannot surpass my uh my predecessors my ancestors like it is part of the american way to do better than your parents and your grandparents and i think that the, the, this movie is if about nothing else the american way of uh certainly corporate moneyed interests uh surpassing you know or or threatening to destroy art but also of like hey we try at some at, we try at things and we beat other people at their own game and i i, I feel like that is like part of what makes America in some ways great, in some ways uh, not great. And so uh, you're saying like, oh, well, I skipped the, the key part. And it's like, well, the key part, in my opinion, does nothing to take away from my point. Yeah, um, if you ignore it, if you ignore. <laughs> no, well, I'm, but, say, I'm saying even if you his... don't ignore it. I wasn't, first of all, I, I literally wasn't yeah. trying to ignore it. I was trying to. I know. I was, I was trying, trying to help to, your point by, by mentioning that. I was trying yeah. to summarize the scene. I'm, I apologize if I missed that, that crucial moment. But in my opinion, that does nothing to detract from my point, which is that I think that uh it, it's positioning him as like hey yes you yes like we as the audience are like yeah tracy let's like show him who's boss show no, him you like, can be better Dave, than your, Dave, your parents it's sort of like it's sort of like accepting a joke like you're trying to um basically see the results of a joke with by losing the punchline right like is is a joke still funny if you miss the key bit that triggers the actual reaction in the character uh, again i'm saying I, I i did not miss the key bit when i watched the movie I just in the summary that I gave you just now, I was just trying to provide a quick summary. And uh, now that you point out the part that I missed and, and didn't say, I'm saying I remember that part. I don't think it's not important my point. to you. Like it's still no. I, I yeah. didn't. I didn't say it's not important to me. It is important to me. It further reinforces my point. So anyway, I think we anyway, obviously are. And also, you forget the the opening scene that I mentioned, which is literally him just berating his employees for not making cars fast enough. Like they they have control over like the there's a lot there's a lot of him swinging his corporate might around him abusing his his employees basically there's nothing sympathetic about that character until the scene where he breaks down in the car and he has a full understanding of it like this is the most this is the most like um I don't know evil Tracy Let's Roll I've seen in a very long time because we're used to him being basically like the um the comforting dad in Lady Bird or something right um. 
Yeah. He's kind of an asshole in divorce. He's kind of an asshole there. Sure, sure, sure. But I'm saying throughout this entire movie, like he is after he decides to crush Ferrari, like it is it's him like being a curmudgeon. It's him being the out of touch CEO who doesn't understand like why they're losing. And it took Lee Iacocca to kind of demonstrate like people don't find the sexy. And he is he is just like Ford is out of touch. That's it. And like maybe through the Dane of his, uh, you know, his power, he allows somebody to, tr- to try and like run with an idea. Um, I don't I don't know how much of like that that is an accomplishment. That just seems like the bare minimum he could do to kind of help his company survive. But anything else? Because I'm sure we've got a I saw a lot of responses to what you guys thought of this movie as a process movie. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot. I, I, okay. Well, how would you characterize those responses, Devendra? Um, I feel like I'm sitting pretty here with <laughs> a lot of a lot of people just kind of going with what I was saying. Because it, here's the thing: I think you guys, I don't know what it is, but I feel like the Ford v Ferrari title certainly okay. A title of a movie will pres- will frame how you view that movie, and I get that. But I don't I don't know about limiting the movie to like wanting it to be just about that or only viewing it through that lens. When I think the movie's a lot more. You I think, I think a, you are mischaracterizing our problems with the movie. You know, I think that yeah. I think that our my my problems with the film go far beyond the title. That was one component of many things that we brought up, and I think that like uh, that I think you know, as I said, I stand by most of what I, I was trying to concede one small part, although you weren't allowing me to do that very gracefully. But I think that like one of the things that uh, I think is like when I when I think back on what I thought about the movie, like one of the things I still think is a problem is it it kind of suffers from what I call like biopic itis, which is like it, it you're you're like reading Wikipedia summary of the events that led up to this main event of Le Mans sixty four. And and you're fat it's like you're watching a guy's life, but you're fast forwarding to only like the interesting bits. You're not given any context for why those bits are interesting or uh or any dramatic tension or build up. Uh like those are like far bigger of a problem to me than like what the title of the movie is and like who you're supposed to root for. Uh, I, I think that like the the best thing that like heist movies do, right? I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast last week, but like yeah, the best thing that heist movies do is they spend like 45 minutes on exposition of why it's important that we do this heist, why, uh, what are the rules of the heist, you know, what are the things we're trying to overcome. This movie does some of that, as you point out, right? Like the break stuff. I think that that is actually like that's the one thing that pays off. They they literally go over the whole Le Mans track in diorama fashion in a scene that is both explaining how the race works, the process of the race, and also bonding Christian Bale's character and his son. So I, there's a lot of that. Like, well, that, I'll that's, say I'll say that uh, one thing that I didn't. Like, first of all, I still think that the it does a pretty poor job of explaining like what is actually involved in 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 racing in Le Mans. But one thing that the movie does well is convey like the visceral exhaustion of what it is like to mm-hmm. to do that race. And I yeah. particularly in the first scene when you see Matt Damon racing in it, and he's like he just looks exhausted, and he's like wiping the shit off his face, and like. Yeah. You think he's going to die? He can die? barely see anything. Yeah. You think he's going to yeah. die? And then, like, later you find out a little bit more about Le Mans, and you're like, oh, like, now I understand why he was so tired, because that was probably, like, hour 23 of the race. And, like, 
oh my gosh, I can't believe anyone would actually even do that. You know, like that, that part is great. Um, and also Henry Ford cried after like 30 seconds of going at that speed, basically. <laughs> so, right. You have uh, all the puzzles. So, so that, that part, that th- those elements I think are good, but I do think that like, I, 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 I do continue to, um, believe that the movie did a poor job of like setting yeah. up the problem solving components of maybe maybe of that film. aspect but the movie certainly like it's spent an entire other movie starring john bernthal where he goes to ferrari and has like a very extended scene about like what they're trying to do and like why that doesn't work and then that leads up to the the, the whole decision like there there's a lot that happens in this movie even before ford decides to go v ferrari which i think is kind of kind of funny so i don't know i, I see a lot of the setup there yeah i, I mean that, you, guys... that, you know now that you bring it up it's like uh, th- that's another thing is like I, I fundamentally just didn't believe this movie needed to be two and a half hours like yeah, you could have done all... the entire ferrari stuff in uh, like not voiceover, but like some some other way, because it's just like that is just completely irrelevant in my opinion. I, like I I guess maybe you need the Ferrari stuff so that when that final moment happens between yeah. them, it's more meaningful. But like I don't know, they're so poorly sketched out in general that it's it's like I don't know that the first hour of the movie with Lee Iacocca really like helped that. In my, I opinion. think there, there's a lot visually that we didn't really talk about because you go to like. You look at the difference between like Ford's factory, which is very efficient, and you got an assembly line, you got people quickly slapping cars together, and then you travel to the sleek elegance of the Ferrari factory where it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, what one guy is just going to build each part and they're going to build it until it's done. And that's it because that's that's art. That's how you create a, you know, a beautiful machine. And it's a very different view instead of being the efficiency optimization of America and just trying to do things and, you know, dumping money into things. The Ferrari vision was just like, let an artist be an artist. Let somebody, you know, who's good at making an engine make this engine, you know, and then at the end we will have something that is, uh, that is not just a commodity. It's not just a Ford car. You know, it is, it is a work of art. It's a, it's a work of art as a machine. Um, yeah, there, there's more we could talk about with this movie. I just, I'm glad that you guys are still thinking about it. Cause I think there is certainly more going on with it. Like, I don't think it's, it's not just a standard biopic. It, it doesn't have the walk hard problem. It doesn't have the, what is, uh, what, what, what is his childhood situation? You know, what, what did he love driving cars as a kid? There's no, no early. So like, in, like I, a box car, like leading up to like, it's just, no, well, the it's situation not a musical is, biopic, you know what I mean? But it's like one of these, there's, uh, there's biopics that like, um, focus intensely on a very short period of a person's life yeah. and there's biopics that like try to be really expansive and like are like here's for this person from birth to death basically sure and i think this movie unfortunately is somewhere in between like i don't think it does a pretty particularly good job of like uh of emphasizing the key aspects that would make this particular moment of these characters lives like that meaningful and I don't, and you know, well, actually, let me just say that I really, in general, don't like that second form of biopic, like at all. Which is like we're gonna give this whole person's, we're gonna summarize this whole person's life in a ninety-minute film. Like I, I kind of really don't like that kind of movie. So I, I would, I would say it actually does a far better job of getting towards uh, the other kind, where you're focusing intensely on a short period. But I think it, it nonetheless still is too surface level in some ways to be satisfying for me personally. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. To me, I see it is purely one of those movies that focuses intensely because it is all about the, you know, the relationship between these two guys and this situation with Ford and them them just trying to accomplish this thing. It's one 
one thing. And the only bit of like expansiveness we get at the end is that, oh, also after he won the race, uh, this thing like killed him. Like the movie doesn't really look beyond this framing of the Ford and Ferrari battle. Um, so I'll just say one other thing. Ryan um, Ferguson writes in the Slash Filmcast. He says, um, I am fortunate. Uh, here we go. Let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try trying to not read this entire email, but to read a, a small part of the email. Um, so he's talking about here the the end of the movie he says uh to me the movie is incredibly relatable i 100 percent agree with davindra that the ford company comes off as the antagonist both in the form of the deuce aka tracy letts and leo bb uh josh lucas that magic of the movie is watching two guys try to do something original within a system that is designed to thwart originality at every turn Towards the end of the podcast, Jeff said it was baffling that audiences were digging the movie so much, but I think it makes a ton of sense. Lots of people work in big bureaucratic systems that can, even during good times, punish you for original creative thinking. What this movie is saying, though, is that even within those systems with everything stacked against you, you can still do something great. You might not get acclaim, you might not get trophies, but you can do the thing, and the doing of the thing is worth it. Hard work is its own reward. Anyway, really enjoyed the film. I don't think it's perfect by any stretch. John Bernthal's character is basically worthless to the plot, and the last 10 or so minutes didn't work for me, but I was fascinated by the drama that played out between Shelby Miles and the Ford Company. You guys rock. Keep being awesome. End quote. Uh, so, anyway, I- I'm just saying, all I'm trying to say, Devendra, is conversation last week and then the the flood of emails and tweets have pulled me slightly more towards your direction. That's that's the yeah. purpose of me having this after dark with you is to say <laughs> the, the flood, sli- the flood of like, yeah, comments. Yeah. I pulled slightly more in your direction. I still think the movie has a lot of problems, but uh, I, I do kind of recognize now what a lot of people saw in it. And I do think that the, the one thing I was way off base on was this idea of like that Ford is in many ways the antagonist, even though the movie might be a little bit more ambiguous in how it sets that up, in my sure. opinion. Um if you if you look less at the how the filmmaking occurs and ha- more at what the actual story of the movie is, Ford is clearly the antagonist. Um, but that's my position, and a lot of people probably disagree. All right, <laughs> shall we wrap it up there? I'm good. Yeah. All right. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanks for listening.